According to a 2011 Gallup poll of fears amongst Americans, it was found that Americans fear public speaking more than anything else on earth, with the exception of snakes. Similarly, according to a Chapman University survey on American fears, our top fears are public speaking, the fear of heights, and bugs. Interestingly enough, fear of clowns rolled in number four on the Chapman list. I've been looking for a list of fears amongst the Filipino. Uh, I could not find one, although I would venture to guess that a fear of flying cockroaches would be on top of that list. But in surveys around the world, public speaking often ranks as the top three fear of most people. Because so many things can go wrong, so many uncomfortable situations can arise. Take in particular two that Canadian comedian Rick Mercer recounts. He notes that sometimes the mood of the room can be affected by things beyond your control. Mercer recounts that one night, the person introducing him went off script and somehow began talking about child suicide. This was a comedic show. His talk was devastatingly sad, and he culminated by asking everyone in the audience to close their eyes and imagine going home tonight to find their child was gone. Mercer recounts, by the time I got to the podium to do my comedy routine, I saw that the half the audience was in tears. Dozens were heading for the door. Another time he recounts, I was speaking at a business breakfast, and minutes before I went to do my comedic routine on stage, the president of the company who had hired me announced that there was going to be a major restructuring, and it was quite possible that in the coming year, half of the people in that room would be out of a job. At which point he leaned into the microphone and said, and now ladies and gentlemen, funny guy, Rick Mercer. It's tough, very difficult to speak to a tough audience. I know, I do it every week. In many ways, my job is not unique to me. It is something that you are also called to do by God, regardless of your personality. If I were to ask you this morning to come, one of you to come, and share just three minutes of your life without any preparation, would you do it? Let's just make that perhaps a weekly thing at each of our four services. I have a feeling that people will stop coming to church. We would be gripped in fear. We would be very much afraid. And yet God calls us to speak to a hostile audience called the world. And the message we're supposed to bring to the world is deeply unpopular. In fact, it is offensive to them. And it is not something they want to hear. How in the world can we gain the confidence and the boldness to do what the Bible tells us we are to do in the Great Commission? I think we're going to find some answers this morning as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2, 
as we exposit verses 1 to 7. As you turn to Ezekiel chapter 2, we're going to find out that God is going to send Ezekiel to one of the toughest crowds you'll ever meet. A rebellious crowd who knew him well. But a crowd that for years had rejected a very similar message given by previous prophets like him. Let's see how God will challenge and encourage Ezekiel to speak to a rebellious generation. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, read this. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. After the Almighty God had revealed a glimpse of his glory to the prophet Ezekiel, and we studied that last week, God asks him to stand up now while he is currently prostrate on the ground. And he tells Ezekiel, I have something important to tell you. God has a mission for Ezekiel. And Ezekiel in these two verses makes it quite clear that this mission is from God Almighty. Because if it were to come from anyone else, one would certainly have second thoughts. Right? There's, there's a difference between, let's say, your sibling tells you to pick up your clothes off the floor versus your parents telling you to pick up your clothes on the floor. What's the difference? The difference is the authority. And this authority comes from the God of the universe who has just revealed himself in all of his majesty and glory. And that glimpse of glory elicited only one reaction from the prophet Ezekiel. And that was for him to fall on the ground in worship. This is the God with full authority to send Ezekiel on a mission. What is that mission? Look at verse 3. And God said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The mission that God was going to send Ezekiel on was to send him to the children of Israel, his own people. And here God characterizes them as a rebellious generation. This is a people that has openly defied God. That's what rebellion means. An open defiance to the authority and the orders of God. And it's not something new. In fact, this is what has characterized the people of Israel for generation. Their fathers have also transgressed against me to this very day. It would not be something easy for the prophet. I wonder if Ezekiel at this moment must have been thinking, Lord, anyone else but the Jewish people. If Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, I'll go to Nineveh. Although Ezekiel comes way after Jonah. Lord, you're telling me to go to a group that has rejected you for generations. How will I be any different? It's like if a sales manager were to tell a salesperson, please, go to this client and sell our product again. 
Oh, and by the way, the client has rejected our product 50 times. Very few salespeople are thinking, well, you know what? With me, it's different. I'm going to prove them wrong. Most every sales agent, if you tell them the client has rejected our product 50 times, are thinking the 51st time definitely won't work. But you see, God does not sugarcoat the situation, nor does he sugarcoat the audience. He gives Ezekiel the reality of how difficult his mission would be. In the same way Christians today are sent into the world to a mission field that is very difficult, it is a world that has thoroughly rejected Jesus Christ. They reject the Scriptures. They reject the Word of God and what it teaches. And yet it is this world that we are called to reach. This is our mission field. It is the sinners, it is the lost that we are called to evangelize and disciple. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. But some of us in our mind have sugarcoated the world. It's an easy world to live in. And the reason we think it's easy is because we are not thinking straight. Let me give you a glimpse of this so-called real world and how hard it is to bring the message from the Scriptures to them. Because it is a world that takes what is logical and makes it illogical. And it is a world that takes what is illogical and makes it somehow mainstream. If you've seen the video by Dr. Michelle Cretella, you'll know what I'm talking about. Dr. Michelle Cretella is the president of the American College of Pediatricians. And she gives a video talk about gender identification. And her assertion is that biological sex is not assigned. It is given at birth. Identity, on the other hand, is not biological. It is psychological. And she notes that sometimes our thinking may be factually right, but many times it's also factually wrong. And her point is just because you think about something, just because there is the mere thought of something, doesn't make it true. And just because you think of something doesn't mean you can take action on that which may be factually wrong. For example, as it relates to the issue of gender identity, she notes, if I were to walk into my doctor's office today and say, hi, I'm Margaret Thatcher. And for those of you who don't know, that's the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. If I were to walk in and say, hi, I'm Margaret Thatcher, my physician will say I'm delusional and give me an antipsychotic drug. However, if instead I walk in as a biological woman and say, I'm a man, he would say, congratulations, you're transgender. If I were to say, doctor, I'm suicidal, I am an amputee trapped in a normal body. Please surgically remove my leg. I would be diagnosed with body identity integrity disorder. But if I were to walk up to that same doctor and say, I'm a man, sign me up for a double mastectomy, my physician will. 
She notes, see, according to most mainstream medical organizations, if you want to cut off a healthy arm or a healthy leg, you are mentally ill. But if you want to cut off a healthy breast or a male organ, you're transgender. It's okay. Let's be clear, she notes. No one is born transgender. If gender identity were hardwired in the brain before birth, identical twins would have the same gender identity 100% of the time, and they don't. And yet, if you and I have the boldness to share the same sentiment as Dr. Michelle Cretella, you and I would be tagged as being bigoted, as being intolerant, as being unscientific, as being uncaring. Because this world is messed up. This world has taken reason, especially as it relates to that which is Christian, and thrown it out the window. The world we are called to minister to is a world that has rebelled against God's ordained plan for life. It is a tough, tough audience. And by the way, just as a note, since I brought up this issue of homosexuality and gender identification, it is a complex issue. Perhaps some of you this morning are struggling with this. And how we deal with this issue must be dealt with in love and compassion, true to the Scriptures. And if you want to listen to a sermon on this subject, you can go to our church's website and search for the Culture War series where we address these issues. Ezekiel is called on a mission to reach out to this rebellious generation. How will God encourage him? There are three things. Three things we are to remember when we are called to speak out to a generation that has utterly rejected the standards that God has set. Continuing verse 4, the first reminder. For they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. God reminds Ezekiel that these people are a rude, disrespectful, and stubborn people. And yet he is to tell them, thus says the Lord God. The first thing, if you're taking notes, number one. Remember, Ezekiel, it is not your words that you speak to this rebellious generation. It is God's word. Remember, not your words, but God's word. We are to remind the people of our generation, that the message we bring does not come from our own opinion. It doesn't come from us. It comes from the God of the universe who is omniscient and omnipotent and sovereign and just in all that He does. You know, when we get into an argument with someone, we begin to cite people who are on our side, right? We want people who will bolster our arguments. And so we cite people who are the most well-educated. We cite people who are the thought leaders or the leaders in the field in which we are debating. So for example, if you were to argue with someone about something in the world of quantum physics, I don't know why you would, but let's say you are, you would want as your sources, Dr. Niels Bohr or 
Dr. Schrodinger or any of the scientists from CERN, Switzerland, which would lend credibility to your argument. You wouldn't want to cite someone like LeBron James and what he has to say about quantum physics, goat as he may be. Likewise, if you are arguing who's more powerful, Hulk or Thor, you would cite Stan Lee to bolster your argument versus a NASA scientist who is a PhD in the field of aerodynamics. Because when arguing issues, it comes down to credibility. It comes down to knowledge in the area in which you are debating. And what God is doing here in verse 4 is that He is lending Ezekiel the most credible and authoritative voice on the matter of how you and I are to live our lives. And it is the word of the unchanging God who is the creator of all human being that has the most authority on how we as human beings are to live our lives. Thus says the Lord God. It's something we need to reference more. Because if people will disagree with us, and they do, what will they say? I disagree with your opinion. Look, you're telling me how to live. Look at the way you live your life. You're not even perfect. And you know, their argument would be right. We are not perfect. How dare we offer them suggestions for how they are to live their lives? And yet, when we say, yes, you're right, I am not perfect, but what I'm telling you is not from me. It is from the Word of God. This is what God says. There is little room to argue. You either choose to obey or you choose to willfully disobey. God reminds Ezekiel that his mission is to a rebellious generation and that he should remind them that it is an unchanging God who is rebuking them who is calling their life to attention you know my friends it's very difficult to argue in the culture today where there are varying degrees of worldviews where there are varying degrees of what people consider to be truth the postmodern mindset is that to each their own. Don't impose your opinion on me. That which you believe is true to you is true to you. Don't impose your truth on me. But this isn't only a postmodern mindset today. It's been going around since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve fell. In the time of the judges, what characterized them, the Bible says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Even amongst the exilic generation of Ezekiel, they continued to rebel against God. That's why, my friends, the only way to combat a generation that has varying worldviews is to hold firm and be foundationed in upon the one truth that we know to be true, which is upon the Word of God as given by Almighty God. If you begin to fudge on that, 
if you begin to waver on that, then there is no truth. Truth becomes relative. You see, in matters of faith, truth is foundation upon the credibility of the one who gives it. And if God Himself has given truth for how we are to live and for what life is all about, then there can be competing worldviews, but there's only one correct one. And you and I can remain firmly grounded in that truth. Do not succumb to the postmodern belief that there are multiple truths. There is only but one. And that comes from the Word of God. Let me especially admonish parents, actually adults, even young people this morning. You and I need to be grounded in the Word of God. You need to be able to say, Thus says the Lord God. And then be able to find it in the Scriptures. Because if you're going to speak on behalf of God, you better know where He said it so that you can reference it. So do you know where in the Bible, if your child challenges you, where does it say in the Bible that I'm not supposed to cheat or to lie? Then you can show them, thus says the Lord God. What if your friends were to challenge you and tell you that life is not fair and therefore God is unfair? Where in the Scriptures can you show them that God says, yes, life isn't fair, but neither is salvation and grace and mercy, and I've given it to you? Where can you prove that God says that you and I are to live our lives for eternal rewards? How can you show a skeptic that dinosaurs and man lived at the same time. It's in the Scriptures. Can you show them where it says, Thus says the Lord. Do you know where to show someone where God says, I don't always answer your questions, but the just will live by faith. Trust me. Where can you show from the Word of God that life is to be lived for a specific purpose where you can go beyond Psalm 23 to find other psalms of hope and comfort to give your grieving friend. Because if you do not know in the Scriptures where to find where God says, thus says the Lord, then you and I don't have much credibility to stand on and speak to a rebellious generation because we ourselves don't know and are unsure. We have heard the information secondhand. If you're going to speak, thus says the Lord, then you better not know not only what He says, but where He says it. Many people often ask me, Pastor, what's the best way to reach out to our Roman Catholic friends I tell them, ask them about their belief, and then show in the Scriptures where that belief is foundationed on. And they can't show it because it's not in there. But most of our Roman Catholic friends don't know the Scriptures. But what if they were to ask you the same thing? Why do you believe what you believe? Would you also give back a blank stare? 
Or would you be able to show them at least the general area where you know, where you can show them that the Scriptures teach about what you believe? Remember, it's not your words. It is the Word of God that you are to bring to this rebellious generation. The second reminder, look at verse 5. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. God tells the prophet Ezekiel, it doesn't matter whether they're listening or not, and they probably won't, since they are a rebellious people. So go in with the mindset that they won't listen to you. They'll ignore you. They'll laugh you off. But no matter what is important, verse 5, is that they will know that a prophet has been among them. And what does that mean, a prophet among them? You see, generally a prophet is one who speaks for the truth of God as God instructs them to do. A prophet is to live his life in righteousness so that the message they bring is consistent with the way they live their lives. That's why prophets in the Bible were often set apart. They were held to a very high standard in the way they are to live. And so God tells the prophet Ezekiel, it doesn't matter if they listen or not, but they should not be able to give the excuse that there was never one messenger that was sent to them to warn them. They may ignore you, but they should at least be able to say, but a prophet has been amongst us. In the same way today, when we speak to a rebellious generation, we can expect to be ignored. We can expect to be laughed off at. But we are to be modern-day prophets messengers in work, in deed, in words. Now, not prophets in the sense that we are to prophesy things because the canon is now closed. God's full revealed word is fully recorded in the scriptures. We are not to add to it. But we are to be modern day prophets in the sense that we are to be a messenger to our generation through our words and actions so that they cannot say they didn't know there was a messenger of God living amongst them. In your spheres of influences, in your schools, in your family, in your places of work, they may not listen to you. They may laugh at you. They may ignore you. But can they at least affirm that a messenger of God through the way you live your life and through your spoken word, has lived amongst them. Because if they can't tell that you are a modern-day prophet of God in their generation living amongst them, then that's a problem. That means you and I are not making an impact. That means you and I are not standing up for what the Scriptures teach. And may I go so far as to say, if no one has been offended by you in what you've said about Jesus or what you've done for Christ in your entire life, 
then you have not been a modern-day prophet or messenger in your generation, young and old. Because if you're going to speak truth, you need to do so. And you better make sure, as I better make sure, that my life matches with the words I bring when I say, thus says the Lord God. They may not listen to us. They may ignore us. But we are to be modern-day prophets in word and deed. I remember recently we caught one of our children lying to us. It's easy to catch children lying because not only do they often always do it, children have not yet figured out that parents know everything. Anyway, when Cindy and I confronted this child, this child was defensive at first, then, when this child could no longer skirt the argument, rebuked us in anger. Well, you've lied to me as well. Shocked, I said, when? And the child cited a specific example from two years back. Something that my wife and I had forgotten but our child remembered vividly. Indeed, we had. In my mind, it was a little white lie. It was justified. We were trying to get that child to do something, and we didn't want all the drama associated with it, so we lied. But we knew we were wrong. Where is our moral ascendancy to be able to rebuke this child? And so we apologize and ask for forgiveness for having done something two years ago and we were wrong. And then we were able to address this child's issue at hand. It is not easy leaving, living as a modern-day prophet. It is not easy to be a messenger of God in word and in deed. And I hope you can see that even being a parent is not easy. To be watched and to be observed 24 hours, 7 days a week. There is great joy in being a parent, but there is great responsibility. A responsibility God has given each one of us to live our lives well. They may not listen to us. They may not heed our advice but at least our family members should know that we have been modern-day prophets in our family circles. Our work colleagues may not listen to us. They may ignore us. But at least they will know that there was a godly influence living amongst them. It is then that we will have the moral authority and ascendancy to teach our children, and to teach our friends and to call our colleagues and lead them to Christ. You see, the second reminder, number two, is this. Remember, regardless if they listen or not, be a faithful messenger in word and deed. Remember, regardless if they listen or not, be a faithful messenger in word and deed. 
Where does the authority in your life come from? Authority does not come in position. It may, but true authority comes in the authenticity of how you live your life. That's where authority comes from, when there is authenticity in your life. I've said it many a times, respect cannot be demanded. Respect must be earned. Now, you can demand respect all you want, and people may give you outward respect, but inside, they will not respect you. Respect has to be earned, and it is earned when you authentically live the life that you talk about. That's when they'll respect you. That's when your children and teenager and adolescents and college-age students will respect you. That's when your colleagues will respect you. That's when your friends will respect you. When you authentically live a Christ-like life in word and deed, it is then that you will find the authority to speak as a messenger of the Lord. It's hard, I know. And yet... That is what is required to speak truth to this generation. That's the buzzword of the millennials, authenticity. They're always looking for authenticity. No hypocrites allowed. They will call you out on it. doesn't matter how old you are. In your mind, you're thinking, no respect for the elders. They don't care. The millennial generation is looking that you walk the talk in authenticity. And if you do you will be able to impact them. The third reminder, verse 6. And you, son of men, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Here is a charge from the Lord. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of them, their words, their looks. You see, our biggest fear of people is not often in the physical intimidation they may project, but in their words and in their looks. We don't want to hear words of rejection. We can't bear the thought of their looks of disapproval. But the Bible says that's exactly what Ezekiel can expect from the rebellious generation he is to minister to. They will stare at him. They will give him disapproving looks. They will gossip about him. They will speak words that are unkind. He will be scratched as he walks through the quote-unquote briars and thorns. He will be stung by them, their words, their looks. And yet, God tells Ezekiel, do not be afraid. Why? Two reasons, verse 7. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. Ezekiel, do not be afraid of them, because you are speaking the words of God. It's like when a younger child goes to their older sibling to tell them to do something. They're not afraid. 
They're not afraid to tell an older sibling to stop playing on their iPad and come get ready for dinner. And why is that young child not afraid? Because if the older ever questions their authority, the child responds, Dad and Mom told me to come and get you. We need not fear because we speak the words of truth because they are the words of God. Now the second reason Ezekiel is not to be afraid is because the responsibility of the speaker ends with him. It is not the speaker's responsibility for how they respond. That's what it says in verse 7. Whether they hear or whether they refuse, they are rebellious. We're often afraid because we think that our responsibility is the response of the person. And so when it comes to evangelism, we're afraid to evangelize and share the gospel because we're afraid of the response we'll get, how they will look at us as religious fanatics, how they will speak ill of us, how they will reject us soundly. But God tells us that their response is their responsibility. Our responsibility comes only in doing what God asks us to do. And yet we take on more than we are really responsible for, and so we cower in fear. We worry too much. We worry what others will think. We worry what others will say. We worry what others will do. It doesn't matter. Our responsibility is to be messengers of the Lord in life and in indeed. That's all we're called to do. How they respond is between them and God. And so here's the third reminder from God to Ezekiel and to us. Number three, remember, do not be afraid. You are not responsible for their response. Remember, do not be afraid. You are not responsible for their response. God identified them as those who would sting as scorpions. They would cut and scrape you like briars and thorns. You will be hurt, but don't worry. That's not your responsibility. Again, another word to our parents this morning. Do your job. Parent your child. Don't be afraid that your child will not like you. There are so many parents today who parent because they think it is their responsibility that when their children grow up, they are to be their children's best friend. And so they don't say what needs to be said. They don't discipline as they should discipline because they want their children to like them. There is no verse in the Bible that says, parents... Make sure your children like you. In fact, if you took all the verses in the Bible about parenting, you will find out that if you were to actually do all those things, your kids will hate you. Because no child likes a parent who disciplines. And yet the responsibility of the parent is to discipline their children, to raise their children in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. 
And so if they don't like you, that's fine. That's fine. Can you accept it today that you are not your child's best friend? Because it is only then when you will be an effective parent. Do not baby them through the process. How they respond to truth is not your responsibility as long as you've already done what needed to be done. It becomes their responsibility between them and God. In an article I recently read entitled Surviving Your Child's Adolescence, and I have a child that's going to high school in a few weeks, so I'm keenly aware now that I will now have a teenager on my hand. And this was a scenario where a parent had to keep reminding and nagging and warning their teen and in this article, it gives a scenario. For example, the young person knows he has to be on time for a job, but he can't make himself get up in the morning, and so should I wake him up or not? The young person knows she has to study, go to class, and turn in assignments, but she's already in college. Should I continue to remind her to do her assignments? What if there's someone who knows they shouldn't drink so much at parties because of how they act and what they may let happen, but in the company of friends, they can't make themselves stop? What to do? The old Walt Kelly quote really captures this conflicted adolescent age. We have met the enemy, and they are us. What can parents do at this point? Here is the article's conclusion. They must let the consequences of the young person's resistant choices play out and not interfere. How to end this rebellion against self-interest and accept their leadership authority in life is the last challenge of adolescence. It must be met before young adulthood can truly begin. In summary... Let them live with the consequences of their choices because it is only then will they become an adult. For too long, we have taken others' response and made it our responsibility. And so we're so afraid. It doesn't work that way in Scripture. In Scripture, we are to live out our responsibility as parents, as colleagues, as children. We are only responsible for our actions and our words, not someone else's. They will answer to God for the choices and the words they make. Similarly, my responsibility is not to get you to like me, although I would love for all of you to like me a lot. But my responsibility is to teach truth and so I must say things that offend. The gospel is an offense. And I used to care how you will respond. I still care in the sense that I wish you would respond to God's word. But how you respond to God's word is your responsibility. How I deliver the word of God is mine, and God will hold me to that. Because if I am beholden to your responses, then it will actually freeze me in saying what needs to be said.
I said, will you? If we're afraid of everyone and what they think about us and their response, then we are frozen by fear. When truth needs to be spoken, it needs to be spoken. In love, in gentleness, in grace, but it needs to be spoken. If, for example, I were to walk along a neighborhood and I saw that a house was on fire, the roof was on fire, the tenants inside were unaware that the roof was on fire, and I were to peer in and I see in the living room the family was gathered around watching a television show, what would I do? Would I think to myself, you know what? They seem to be enjoying the show. I've seen that show. It's a good one. I'll wait until they finish it, and then I'll let them know that their house is on fire. Of course not. I'd bang on their window, bang on their door, and they may look at me with strange looks like, who's that man? Who's that crazy man? And they may be annoyed, and they may be angry, and at that moment they may hate me because I'm bothering them from watching their favorite television show. But at least when they open the door, I can tell them your house is on fire. How they respond after that, that's on them. If they go back and say, you know what, let me finish the show, that's on them. That's the stupidity of their decision, but that's on them. If they all run out and thank me, so be it. If they never thank me, that's fine. But I have done what I'm called to do. In the world today, everyone is destined for eternal fire in hell. And yet we're so worried that we don't want to offend them so that they can enjoy their life that we keep our mouth shut. Let us be quiet so that they can enjoy life. And when they get older, I'll let them know that they're going to experience the eternal fires of hell. And then we forget. And that's why as often happens, it's often in a hospital room that we get that 911 call to a pastor. Come, our father, our mother, our uncle, our aunt is dying. Come and share the gospel. Sometimes it's a little bit too late. It's too late. The world is on fire. The urgency by which we need to go and speak truth to this generation is now. It's now, not later. But fear grips us because we're afraid of how they will respond. You and I are not responsible for their response. You and I are responsible for our actions. So we as a church as we head towards our 50th year of existence, we are called as a church, the body of Christ, every single one of us, to go out and speak to a world that has thoroughly rejected Jesus Christ. As we go out, remember, you go out not with your own words, but with the Word of God. So know it well. Remember, regardless if they listen to you or not, you and I are to be a faithful messenger 
in word and in deed. So let us live with authenticity so that we have authority. Remember, do not be afraid. You and I are not responsible for others' response, just our response to what God's Word says. So let's go out and engage this rebellious generation for the Lord and see God at work. They may reject us, but at least they will say of each one of us in our church that a prophet has been amongst us. Let's pray. Father, for too long, we was just, we've just sat back so gripped in fear for what others will think about us. It's high time we get our act together because you call us like you do with Ezekiel to be your spokesperson in word and deed. Help us to deal with rejection. Help us to accept it. Help us to embrace it. And may it be that in every sphere of our influence, even though they may reject us and reject you, they cannot say there was no prophet amongst us. They will acknowledge that in each sphere of influence, there was a light of Jesus Christ that has lived amongst them, and it is us. Challenge us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.